Welcome. My name is Gina Timberman, and you are listening to Timber People, a podcast about people who, like timber, are strong, build and create, who gather us together like fuel that feeds fire. People who support structures of our community that uplift and protect. Hello and welcome. I'm really honored today to welcome Andrea Miller, the legal director for Oklahoma City University School of Law, the Oklahoma Innocence Project. Welcome. Thank you. It's so ha- I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, I want to start out and just express my appreciation for your warrior ways. I want to thank you for your work with the Oklahoma Innocence Project. It is not easy, and many people do not really understand the history and the evolution of the Oklahoma Innocence Project and what that means for people who are incarcerated. And can you talk a little bit about your work? And I also want the listeners to learn about your journey with your career. Okay. I'll start with the Oklahoma Innocence Project. Um, The Oklahoma Innocence Project was started at OCU School of Law in 2011 by my good friend uh, Tiffany Murphy, who is no longer with the project, but we remain colleagues and good friends. Uh, it is a clinic in, within the law school, so I have law students working with me on cases of people who say that they are not um, responsible for the crime for which they have been convicted. Um, our criteria for wrongful convictions is somebody who had nothing to do with the crime, wasn't there, didn't do it. So there are some cases that kind of fall into a gray area. We don't really do self-defense cases. It's got to be a case of ag- absolute factual innocence. Uh, we investigate those cases. We uh, Once we get to the point where we decide that a case, not only do we believe in a case, but that we can actually generate the kind of new evidence we have to have to get back into court and then have constitutional claims that we can litigate in court, we will then make a um, commitment to litigate that case absolutely pro bono. So our clients never pay a dime. And this is something that I really am working to get out there because there are some people claiming to be associated with the Oklahoma Innocence Project who are taking money from inmates and not doing them any justice. And so we are a completely pro bono service, which means that no inmate um, nor their family will ever be charged a dime for legal representation, the use of investigators, the use of experts, because this is a very expensive process. It can take us years to investigate a case before we ever get into court. And then it can take us several years once we're in court to actually resolve the case. And so it's a very long, very costly process. This is part of the reason why the Innocence Network um, began with the original Innocence Project in New York, and then it spread across the country. And now it's actually an international network because um, we represent people who do no longer have the right to counsel and no longer are given any resources to, to try to prove their innocence. And so um, we are there to, to provide absolutely pro bono representation all the way through the process. So we'll start in state court. We'll go all the way through federal court if necessary. Hopefully somewhere along the way we convince some judge somewhere that that our client is innocent and it will result in an exoneration. You're a warrior and the work that you and your team are accomplishing is important to America, to the sense of our justice system, to what it means to the uh, concept of democracy. And I was looking at some of these statistics 
about the number of exonerations that Oklahoma lists on the National Registry of Exonerations. Can you talk a little bit about where we stand in Oklahoma from the national perspective? Yes, we have a high rate of um, of wrongful conviction in relation to, we have a high rate of incarceration, right. so it kind of makes sense. Right. We estimate that somewhere between 5 and 10% of the prison population is wrongfully convicted. Mm-hmm. If you think about, the, you can do the math, we have on any given day, Oklahoma incarcerates about 30,000 people. So you do the 5% on that, you know, it's more cases than anybody is ever going to be able to actually litigate. We, uh, the, the registry lists 45 exonerees. Those include death row exonerees, as well as people who are convicted of um, other types of crimes. Uh, but that is part of the reason why the need in Oklahoma for an innocence project was so critical. It's because we know that there is a fairly high number of uh, wrongful convictions within the state of Oklahoma. It's really important, the pro bono work that you're, you're doing and the cost of investigation, the litigation of DNA post-conviction can be upwards of, you know, at least or more than $100,000. And so um, that pro bono work that, that you all are, are doing, it's really important. It is so much more expensive to exonerate an innocent person mm-hmm. than it is to convict an innocent person to begin with. It's also a lot slower um, because of the way the system, the court system isn't exactly set up to factually exonerate somebody right. because, you know, appellate courts don't deal with facts. Mm-hmm. They deal with law. And so it's a much more expensive, drawn out process. I served on the Oklahoma Death Penalty Review Commission and the process of working through that report with pre-conviction, post-conviction, that was such an educational experience for me. And I know that, you know, the report came out for a moratorium on the death penalty because in light of, you know, Oklahoma's experiences and really what that meant for um, potentially innocent people, it was really interesting for me to experience the panel that you participated in. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yes. In uh, in my previous life, I handled capital appeals and my heart very much still lives in right. that world also. And with my clients who are on death row yes. um, and the clients I've lost um, who have been executed in this last span of a couple of years mm-hmm. that we've started executing people again. And I think that for a lot of people, the specter of an innocent person being executed is so much more a wake-up call than saying this person is in prison for drugs for 10 years but didn't commit the crime. Right. So I think there is something that, that, that draws the spotlight to capital cases because of its ultimate finality right. um, and the horror of the idea that an innocent person could be executed. But if you think about it, this is a new conversation. When we were in law school, right. nobody was talking about right. innocence cases. Mm-hmm. And I tell my students that. I graduated in 1996. DNA was brand new in its infancy at that point. And so it really is DNA evidence that started this because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, people who had been claiming that they were innocent of the crime they had been con- convicted of had a way to prove it that's that's more black and white than most other types of cases. So, you know, this is this conversation is something that has sprung up over the course of right. the last 25, 26 years. And so I think it does change the conversation about capital cases. I know that you all on the commission 
dealt with that to some extent, although it seems like it mostly fell on deaf ears, right. although now there's been a, mm -hmm. a renaissance, if you will, of the concerns that the commission raised back in, what, 27, 20, uh, 2017, right. 2018, right. Um, in light of the Richard Glossop case mm -hmm. and to some extent the Philip Hancock case, although Mr. Hancock was executed a couple weeks ago despite questions as to, it was a self-defense case, but despite questions as right. to legal culpability, right. at least, even if it wasn't factual innocence. And so I think it's all very much wrapped up together. And I don't think you can live in a death penalty state without necessarily talking about the impact of the conviction of innocent people mm -hmm. um, on death row. I represented a death row inmate who was exonerated. Um, he was under exonerated in federal habeas with a different lawyer who was a phenomenal lawyer, Jack Fisher, mm -hmm. who um, still litigating cases. But so I've walked that path with a client and it is terrifying. It they're, is. All they're all terrifying to some extent, but right. of course the stakes are just so much higher on capital cases. We're talking about people, I mean, human, human rights. And I want to say I really appreciate your support of the First Americans Museum. And I know that you have an upcoming conference and experience that will be at the First Americans Museum. And in planning the museum, we really wanted to focus on a timeline as a part of that major exhibition space about nationhood, nation to nation. And, you know, something if you look carefully as to what's happening across the span of the pre-Constitution um, removal throughout the American timeline experience and relationships with tribes and our country. Something we wanted for an experience for a visitor to take away was really about if this can happen to tribal nations, about nationhood, how does it impact the person, peoplehood? And so it's important that we really understand how our laws affect our tribal nations, of course, but also the people and citizens of this country. It's really important. Well, it is, that, that is a path that I am just starting down myself, despite the fact that I've lived in the state of Oklahoma my entire life. Right. Um, of course, there's been kind of an awakening in the light of um, the McGirt decision mm -hmm. uh, that's on everybody's minds all the time. Right. In fact, the Court of Criminal Appeals handed down a new McGirt opinion on Friday. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but from what I understand, it's not... Um, doesn't look like it's super consistent with McGirt. Um, so that battle is going to continue to rage. And I think it spotlights a lot the relations between not only na tribal nations right. amongst each other, but obviously with the state and then with federal authorities. And it's amazing to me, and you, you, you can speak to this far better than I can, how much resistance there still is in 2023 to tribal rights, to the protection of people who are citizens of the tribes and recognition that the tribes have the right to prosecute their own citizens, that they, they have a right to say, we don't want other authorities prosecuting our citizens. And I think that it is it must be very scary that now there's more gray. It seems like there's more gray area now than right. there was before. And who has jurisdiction over me and who doesn't in who am I beholden to and who am I not beholden to? And, um, and it seems to me that, that uh, this is something that's going to continue to require a lot of um, litigation and a lot of discussion in legal quarters to try to figure it all out, short of just saying, 
you know, the state gets to do whatever they want despite tribal intentions and despite what the tribes are able to do for themselves. It's really a, kind of a amazing turn of events. It is. And it's frustrating when we feel we take steps backwards. Um, we are in an age where we can learn from our history. And like you mentioned, we didn't have this experience in law school. And I know that the project is working with students. Can you talk a little bit about how you're engaging the law students and what that means for their path moving forward in, in their career? Sure, because um, I love talking about my classes. Um, so anybody who actually ends up in the clinic, in the, in the Oklahoma Innocence Project clinic, has to start with a prerequisite class called Wrongful Convictions where we study, we do about three or four weeks of horrible procedural stuff and they just hate every second of it. And I hate every <laughs> second of it. And then we get to the good stuff because we talk about the um, leading causes of wrongful convictions, mm -hmm. which are things like faulty eyewitness identification, right. false confessions, faulty forensic evidence, uh, all things that I remember the commission addressed in their, in their report um, relating to the death penalty. Um, but it's a fun class because those, the problem is, all of the leading causes of wrongful convictions tend to be, as far as evidence goes, the type of evidence that you most frequently see in criminal cases right. in every courtroom in America. Right. And so I think it gives them a really good foundation, not only as to the causes of wrongful convictions, but then when they go out and um, they become practicing lawyers, if they go into the criminal justice system, then they at least are aware of the problems, whether they're on the prosecution side or the defense side. I like to tell my students the first day of class, you know, this isn't a criminal defense class. This is a criminal justice class because nobody believes innocent people should be right. incarcerated. Right. And so re regardless of which, which side of the aisle they're going to go into, if they're going to go into the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. it gives them a really good foundation, I think, for where, you know, everybody has to do the things the way you're supposed to do them. And if any part of the system breaks down, the wrong person gets convicted. So it, that's that's the foundation. So then when students come into the clinic uh, to work with me, they us I usually have um, students who are doing their first semester in the clinic starting on a new case. So it's a case that we have, the, the way we get our cases is an inmate has to reach out to us and say, all they have to say in a letter is, I'm innocent and I need help. Now, normally they tell us a lot more, right. but minimally we they have they have to directly ask us for help. So mom can't ask for help. Boyfriend can't ask for help. Right. It, it has to come directly from the inmate. And then we generate a fairly long questionnaire that asks a lot of questions about their case. So if it gets past, and we have a criteria that a case has to meet. So if it gets past that initial questionnaire mm -hmm. stage, then I sort through them and look at what might might create a path in terms of uh, being able to generate new evidence. And if it makes it past my vetting, then um, I'll assign a student to it. And the student will spend their first semester either building a file, because often, often we have clients who didn't receive effective assistance of counsel and saying it that way is a vast understatement of what they've received. So often we're not inheriting like a defense file right. where we would have all, all the information that the state turned over before trial. So sometimes they're trying to generate information through the few mechanisms we have to do that, like open records requests, mm -hmm. gathering records and all that stuff. Um, if it looks like there's, if it's a case where they say, 
I had an alibi, but nobody ever investigated my alibi. And then I'll probably uh, hook the student up with one of our investigators to start, because that's a pretty quick way of seeing if we can produce some new evidence that way. So they are very much in a investigative capacity right. from the very beginning. And then all along, in order to, new facts don't get you back into court. Mm -hmm. New constitutional claims get you back right. into court. So they're also having to figure out where the constitutional claims might be, whether it's a ineffective assistance of counsel claim, a, uh, you know, the prosecution withheld Brady material, mm -hmm. a, um, you know, some kind of um, due process violation from the way an eyewitness identification was obtained. They're having to do the legal side of it, too. So they, they get a pretty good glimpse of how criminal cases require not just one of those tracks, but both of those tracks, right. if you're really going to do the case justice. Um, and then um, by the end of the semester, we usually have an idea of whether, I mean, some cases we close fairly quickly. Some cases we work on for years and can never make any headway. But by the end of the first semester that they're working on the case, we usually have a pretty good idea of where the case is going and if we're going to continue working on it or not. Some of my students end up doing a second semester. And this semester, this coming up semester, I have a, two students who are doing an unprecedented third semester. Oh, wow. So they've spent basically... <laughs> over half their law school career with me, which right, makes right. me really happy. Um, that says so, a lot. I mean, so, that says a lot. <laughs> well, it's for the, for the people who want to go into the criminal justice system, you know, it's a little bit more gratifying, I think, than some of the more substantive law school classes that, and, you know, when we went to school, we didn't right. really get that kind of hands-on. Right. So it's kind of, this is kind of a new um, facet of law school education in this day and age. Also, you know, something that's changed. Um, and then um, I've had a couple of students who have now graduated and become my co-counsel on the case oh, they wow. worked um, in the project. So, right. and in fact, um, we had, a, we won a case in June out of Sequoia County, mm -hmm. and the student who worked on that case in the clinic is my co-counsel on that case. Oh, wow. uh, although she can't, her new career sometimes conflicts with her ability to come, right. come to court with us, but she's still remained part of the team. So, I mean, it can be a very all-encompassing um, situation for some of these students who, um, you know, I never let them leave. It's right, just, right. Once they're signed up, they're signed up forever. <laughs> I would have loved to take one of your classes, and it'd be great to sit in, you know, to experience. You're welcome anytime Thank you want. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Although I don't recommend coming the first four weeks of class <laughs> right. because going through habeas stuff is just right. really dreadful. Um, it has to be rewarding to really think about the impact um, that, that you have and the project has um, really on the students, but also, um, you know, for your clients. Um, that impact is, it's it's major. I, I think it is. And another facet of what we do, and this makes us unique as far as I know, amongst all of the Innocence Network uh, clinics across the country, we actually work with a um, collaboration with the Forensic Science Institute mm -hmm. at the University of Central Oklahoma. So we have graduate forensic students in the clinic working hands-on with the law students reviewing cases that involve forensic evidence. That's been a game changer for us right. because it speeds up dramatically. I mean, the things they can see in these records that you know the, that the law students and I can't see is just amazing. Uh, and so those are the people who are going to be going into crime labs and doing the work on the forensic side of things. Right. And they get a firsthand um, view 
of what it looks like when the forensic people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And UCO is very dedicated to teaching them how to do things right and how not to do things. Right. And so the working in the Innocence Project is very much a part of that mission because they can see when when a forensic expert, you know, kind of skews the results or testifies beyond the capacity of a particular area of forensic science. Uh, and so it, it, you know, I'm hoping that, that it, it creates kind of this holistic um, impact on the system down the line because our students, you know, they, they become criminal defense lawyers, right. they become public defenders, they become prosecutors, they become assistant attorney generals. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I'm hopeful that just knowing what happens in these cases makes a huge difference because there's still a lot of lawyers out there and there's a lot of judges who don't really understand what, how somebody can be innocent and still be convicted in our system. Like it, it, there are a lot of uh, people out there who still, that is something that they just cannot believe because 30 right. years ago, nobody believed innocent people were, were incarcerated. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. The reality is different. Yeah. Um, I've had the pleasure of getting to know your beautiful daughter, Sarah, who's with us today. And Sarah's in college right now. And when you were in college, did you think you'd ever be doing work like this? And yes, because I, I knew I knew from I don't know the time I was in high school that I wanted to do um, criminal defense work and specifically capital work. Mm -hmm. And there was an incident um, involving a high profile execution, not in Oklahoma, but in I think Florida when I was in high school that I remember reading about right. and uh, thinking that just, that doesn't seem to be like how that should work. And, um, and I debated cap my first debate topic in high school oh, wow. um, was capital punishment. And I was in favor until I did the debate until we did it as a debate topic. Right. And I changed my mind about it. And that kind of put me on that path. It's important that you were open to, not everybody is, you know, and um, it's important that we learn what we can, you know, about our justice system to inform us of the relationship it has to us. So it's, I think that's really interesting. Did you grow up in Oklahoma City? I did. Great. Yeah. I graduated from Bishop McGinnis High School. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, I'm just, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show and I really would love to have you back. And we've you know, spoke just briefly about some of the work that you're doing, and it's diverse. Um, it impacts our communities, all of our communities around our state. And I know you're doing really important things, and I would love to have you back on the show sometime. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank Andrea. you. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. I would love to come back sometime. That'd be great. Thank you. Thanks. Yakoki, thank you for joining us. Timber People is brought to you by the Possibilities Podcast Platform. As we wrap up, Possibilities would like to give a special thank you to this episode's sponsor, Lucy Fritz and Fritz Family Farm, paving the way for creative expression in our community. Their commitment to our vision allows us to continue to have these conversations. We are grateful for your continued support, Lucy Fritz and Fritz Family Farm.